Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. On today's program, I'll take a closer look at a local hub for outsider art. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to review an epic play all about the rise and fall of one of the country's largest financial firms. Later in the show, we'll hear why Banned Books Week has some extra significance this year, and I'll catch up with the general manager of the Music Box Theater to preview a month of scary movies. All that's coming up. Thanks for making time for arts and culture this morning. Chicago is among the world's greatest cities to view art, thanks in large part to a variety of institutions and museums. Everyone knows about the Art Institute and the Museum of Contemporary Art, but if you're looking for something a little outside the box, there's a museum based in Chicago's River West neighborhood. There will always be artists in unexpected places, art made by unexpected creators. This is Deborah Kerr, president and CEO of Intuit, the Center for Intuitive and Outsider Art. The museum, which was established over 30 years ago, is among a small group of institutions that focus exclusively on outsider art, or what the French might call art brut. This style of art is also sometimes referred to as intuitive, which helps explain the museum's name. But defining exactly what outsider or intuitive art is, that's a little more complicated. I recently caught up with Kerr at Intuit to talk about the museum's past, present, and future. Intuit's a really special place. There are only a handful of museums in the world that focus specifically on outsider art, and Intuit is one of those. Uh, We're recognized around the world for that. And outsider art doesn't have a clean and neat definition. It's pretty messy, and the term is a little bit messy. But basically, we focus on art made by creators who don't come from the mainstream art world. These are people who are self-taught, who oftentimes have lived in difficult circumstances, poverty or homelessness or or mental or physical illness, PTSD, incarceration, institutionalization, and they make art because they are so driven to realize their inner vision that they must make art. The history of the museum goes back to the the early 90s? Yeah, the museum was was founded in 91, but I think that the story goes back even further. The French artist Jean Dubuffet, who you'll know from the the piece in front of the Thompson Building, he was an early advocate for this art in Europe and called it Art Brut. And he came to New York in the early 50s trying to advocate for this pure form of art as he saw it. Got very little traction, and he came to Chicago and gave a talk in 1951 at the Arts Club of Chicago. And Chicago was already thinking differently about art. Uh, the Arts Club had had a Horace Pippin exhibit. He was a self, self-taught artist. And he talked about this, and, and it was there was a receptive audience here in Chicago. And then 
in the 60s and 70s, there were, there were teachers at the School of the Art Institute and at Roosevelt University who were really encouraging their art students to think differently and look differently, go to places like Maxwell Street Market, look at the, the funky, you know, junk and toy and, and novelty stores around Chicago and, and become collectors of things that look different. So there was already a lot of people here embracing this art and then in 1982, when um, Black Folk Art in America traveled around the country, it was a Corcoran exhibit, it didn't go to the Art Institute or the MCA, but it went to the Field Museum. And a lot of people got exposed to what was called folk art, but it really was this self-taught art. And those people that were enthusiasts for the genre and were really putting Chicago on the map as a place that was accepting of this genre and promoting it, decided to come together and form Intuit. In 1991, we were formed. In 1999, Intuit purchased the first floor of this building and it became our permanent home. And then um, in 2018, we took possession of the second floor of the building. And now we're working towards renovating and making a larger museum. So what's the approach to programming at the museum today? Is the focus on contemporary outsider artists or is it more looking back? Uh, the history of outsider art? The, the breadth of our programs and our exhibitions really takes into account um, some of those um, historical outsider artists like our own Henry Darger, probably the most famous outsider artist in the world who came from Chicago. We like a mix of both. We like to focus on new, newly discovered, living, self-taught artists, but we also mix that in with exhibitions that look at, at some of the maybe more well-known names from, from past discoveries and exhibitions. One of the things about outsider art is that you know, scholars and enthusiasts ask, will there be outsider artists in the future? Will there be people who are not exposed to the mainstream art world, um, given the, the speed at which technology is, is in our lives and, and infiltrating sort of every aspect of society. But I think there are, we always will be people who, you know, for one reason or another, are not exposed to the mainstream art world by choice or circumstance and become artists because they are so motivated to create that they must create there will always be outsider artists. The term is problematic. I think people hear the term outsider and they think that we are pushing someone to the outside. And if you're someone who is on the outside of mainstream society, it doesn't feel as cool to be, be there as maybe it does to those that are in the mainstream. We think of the term as a creator who is making their art outside the mainstream. And for us, that is a specific kind of genius, that they didn't have to be influenced by the mainstream art world. They didn't have to be influenced by other artists who went to art school. They are finding their genius on their own, and they have to create, and that is a really special thing about this art. And then as far as perceptions of outsider art from patrons and, and visitors and the art community, I would imagine those have evolved quite a bit over the museum's 30 plus years. So we've had enthusiasts for this art since, you know, mid, mid 1900s. But um, today, the mainstream art world has really discovered uh, this art and has really embraced it. So you can see major exhibitions. There's a great exhibition up right now at the Smithsonian American Art Museum, National Gallery, MoMA, 
Metropolitan Museum, the High Museum in Atlanta, all these mainstream art museums are doing exhibitions that feature outsider artists. The Art Institute did Joseph Yoakum, What I Saw last year, just an incredible exhibition of works by Chicago and Joseph Yoakum and, and someone whose art is in our collection. So there is a much wider acceptance and frankly growing market um, in the in the gallery and commercial world for this work. So that's one of Intuit's early um, goals was to shine a light on this work, bring it to more people's attention. We're still doing that. We're still finding people who've never heard of this work and are discovering it and are completely enchanted and moved by it. That's still our that's still our mission, but it's, it's exciting to see that there are many more people who are coming to love and care for and popularize this work. That's Deborah Kerr, the executive director of Intuit, the Center for Intuitive and Outsider Art. The museum is currently closed for renovations, but it is holding a fundraiser at Stage 773 on October 13th titled Friday the 13th in Wonderland. You can learn more by visiting art.org. And you are listening to the Arts Section. My name's Gary Zydek. Joining me remotely are the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Good Gary. Good morning, Gary. The rise and fall of one of America's largest investment firms is the source material for Stefano Massini's 2013 play, The Layman Trilogy. A Broadway production won several Tony Awards, and now the play is getting its Chicago premiere. Timeline Theater is presenting the Layman Trilogy at the Broadway Playhouse through November 26th. I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with the end of the Layman story. The firm filed for bankruptcy in 2008, but not as many likely know the beginning of that story, and that's really where the Layman Trilogy starts. Carrie, this production has uh, epic aspirations coming in at over three hours. It does. You know, you mentioned it, uh, Stefano Massini wrote what, it, what I think is actually a long novel in blank verse, although I have not myself read it. Originally, that has had many iterations. My understanding is the original play, which first premiered in 2013 in France, ran about five hours. It was subsequently in Italy, then on the West End, and by the time it got to, I think, New York, it was cut down to a a more manageable three-plus hours, I should say. It's three acts, two intermissions, but it's a highly entertaining evening, as well as an epic one. And you are correct. It starts with with the, literally, with the arrival of the first layman brother on American soil. There was a trio of brothers from Bavaria, German Jews. We first meet, as they, as he is renamed when he arrives in the U.S., Henry, as he steps off the boat in New York in 1844, he's soon joined by Emmanuel and Mayer, his, the middle and younger brother. But instead of New York, they originally find success in Montgomery, Alabama, first as sellers of clothing and textile merchants, eventually becoming cotton brokers in the pre-Civil War era and taking advantage of more and more opportunities with more and more complicated ways of doing business 
that challenge all three brothers and their descendants over time. Uh, along the way, their stories intersect with American history, from the Civil War to the Great Depression to the final death knell of, of the Lehman Empire in the 2008 collapse. Now, what's really interesting is that three actors play all the characters in this show, and they are a tremendous cast in this production, which is timeline in association, as you mentioned, with Broadway in Chicago, under the direction of Nick Bowling and Vanessa Stalling. I went in, I will admit, a little bit trepidatious, and I came out feeling absolutely exhilarated. Jonathan, what was your take on this? This is a terrific show, Kara. You and I are in agreement on that. It's wonderfully directed and designed, and it's really a must-see tour de force for three veteran Chicago actors. As you said, they take on multiple roles. It's a long evening, but it's eminently engaging from start to finish as we mark the rise of the Lehman Brothers as a company, as well as the Lehman Brothers personally, as you said, as they uh, initially are trading in cotton and raw cotton, coffee, railroads, oil, and tobacco, and eventually becoming a Wall Street investment bank. And while this is happening, the family itself reshapes, uh, you know, as the company is is kind of a, an inverted pyramid getting larger and larger and wider and wider, the family is the opposite. We watch it go from three brothers, the original three brothers, to two of their sons, and finally one of the grandsons who ran the business until 1969. After them, after the last layman departed the company, after them came the deluge, ending in the two <laughs> Ending in the 2008 subprime mortgage collapse and the bankruptcy of Lehman Brothers after 164 years. But this story is squarely focused on the Lehman family, not really on what happened later on. As you have explained, uh, this began life as an, as a, a, an Italian novel. There have been various uh, stage adaptations the one we're seeing is by the British playwright and director Ben Power. If I had to come up with an equivalent, I would cite the novel Ragtime, with its energetic narrative and its mix of real history with fiction. And as shaped for the stage by Power, it's an elaborate work of story theater technique. Uh, in which actors provide elaborate narrative descriptions of actions and emotions and events as they also slip in and out of various characters, uh, male and female. Now, for me, the narrative portions were richly detailed and vivid, much like I was listening to someone read Charles Dickens. And like Dickens, the Lehman Trilogy keeps you hanging on, waiting for the next twist. Absolutely. And if you're worried that this is going to be a pedantic lecture in economics, fear not. Although you will certainly get the trajectory of how we went from, you know, being a nation or, or the family, you know, as the nation developed, went from being people who invested and sold things to people who invest and sell concepts or ideas of money. <laughs> and don't ask me to explain the subprime because I will not be able to do that for you. And indeed, I think one of the things you pick up on is that the, the, the business interests of the layman's became even bigger than they within the family could possibly handle. Um, but the history along the way, I think, is very clearly notated. It's specific. It's rooted. One of the things that I really liked in the section where the Great Depression first hits is we meet two characters as very young boys who later end up becoming key players in the layman empire. But at the time, they're just, they're just working-class kids who are facing the same deprivation and fear 
that so many Americans faced. So it's sort of, you know, the elevator going up, the elevator going down. Um, but it's handled in a very, I thought, nuanced way that doesn't get us too much into the weeds. It's not a, a you could certainly look at this production or this story as a comment on the problems of capitalism, and I wouldn't argue with you, but it is not a manifesto. It is not a screed. It is so rooted in these personalities that I think by seeing what happens to the family over time, we get a sense of what happens when people lose their roots to some extent. And I think it's an interesting observation you made, Jonathan, that the empire gets larger, the family shrinks and shrinks and shrinks, and those are some of the most moving sections from early on I don't think it's a spoiler. Henry dies fairly young of yellow fever up to, you know, some of the other losses along the way. Well, well and, it's, actually, it's, it's interesting the way that's handled. And I'm, 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 I agree with you. The story has, it's not a lecture uh, and, and by any means, but it is pertinent to our world today. And the, the crucial point happens when the Lehman Brothers as a company moves from trading actual goods and commodities mm-hmm. to trading money and financial instruments. Right. And its ideas of value and integrity become more and more abstract. Absolutely. And at the same time, the company leadership narrows to one family member with no one else to provide balance or advice. And eventually, Lehman Brothers as a company loses all connection to its history. And this is smartly delineated in the play by the ever shorter mourning periods the company declares each time a Lehman brother or son dies. Right. Uh, yeah. I should We should mention the performers' names, because there's only three oh, yes. of them. Mitchell J. Fain, Anish Jeff Milani, and Joey Slotnick, all very well-known to Chicago theater lovers. Um, and I think also, you mentioned the environment. It's a beautiful, cunning set by Colette Pollard, which looks like a storage room file boxes, tables, office chairs and tables, yeah, and office chairs and, and conference tables. And these are all utilized in a very interesting story theater way, as you mentioned, Jonathan, to create the various environments, helped by some terrific projections by Anthony Churchill. And as, as these um, environments shift, we really get a sense of the backdrop is the story of the American dream and all its glory, lies, heartbreak, and history how it affects the layman's, and how indeed it affected so many other families who were affected by the kinds of investments and changes in financial weather that the layman's influenced over time. Absolutely. Uh, as you mentioned, the players, Mitchell Fain, Anishet Milani, and Joey Slotnick are, are wonderful. The directors, Nick Bowling and Vanessa Stalling, the design team, which is exceptional, they all do justice to this story, which is an epic history, which nonetheless is intimately and engagingly told. Yeah, and there's some nice, you know, sort of uh, parallelisms. You know, in the first generation, the three brothers, uh, Henry is, sort of, is, called, is called the head, you know, uh, uh, middle brother Emmanuel is referred to as the arm. He's kind of more the, 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 the muscle, if you will. And, uh, He's a more direct action sort of person. And then the youngest brother, Mayor, they call him the spud or the potato because he has a face as smooth as a, you know, smooth shaven as a, as a newly peeled potato. <laughs> and he's sort of a mediator. And then as we get into subsequent generations, we see, you know, uh, cousins. Uh, one cousin becomes more left-leaning and is running and, and actually did become governor of New York. The other gets deeper and deeper into layman business. So it's interesting to see these three actors playing all these different characters, yet still kind of picking up little resonances, little gestures, little moments 
that we've seen earlier from previous characters sort of replicating, if you will, in the DNA of the subsequent family members. All right. It sounds like two strong recommendations. Timeline Theater's Chicago premiere of the Layman Trilogy continues through November 26th. If you're just tuning in, my name is Gary Zydek. I'm here with the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Before we wrap up, also wanted to highlight the Equity Jeff Awards ceremonies taking place Monday, October 2nd at Drury Lane. I believe this is the 55th anniversary of the Equity Awards. Are either of you going to the ceremony? Sadly, it's a production day for me, so I will not be able to attend, but I certainly will be sending all my best wishes to all the to all the nominees. You know, everyone's a winner. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And uh, I, I am not going because, once again this year, they're not giving me an award. You know, I, I feel like Bob Hope at the Oscars, you know. Every, I used to be, only, of course, he, he emceed them, but I'm not doing that. I was on the job committee for, uh, for 10 years. I was uh, chairman of its, uh, at that time, chairperson of uh, what that time, at that time was called the Citations Wing, the, mm-hmm. the non-equity uh, performance wings. And um, but that's a lot of years ago. Uh, that's that's uh, when I was much much younger. The committee works hard. They have a lot of theater to see, a lot of uh, categories to judge and juggle, and it's always a high point of the of the year. Uh, it does not mean a lot monetarily to the winners, unlike winning an Oscar or winning a Tony Award, but it means a great deal of prestige uh, right. to be honored by your peers, so not so much your peers, because the committee is not made up of, of, of uh, there are some theater professionals on it, but it's not really a peer group, but to be honored by your community. And I would say that, Jeff, you know, they, there's a non-equity, as I think you mentioned, Gary, and then the, the equity awards, but even within these categories, they've adjusted with the times, for example, they break down several of the categories into uh, large and mid-sized theaters, which particularly in the design categories means that companies that don't have the, you know, the budgets of a Goodman or a Steppenwolf can still put their work forward and be recognized for what they're doing. They got rid of gendered acting categories a few years ago. So now it's just performer in a principal role play or performer in a supporting role musical. Um, in some cases, people are competing against themselves <laughs> because of that. Um, and they also put in a short-run category which they're going to maintain. I think you and I noted this, Jonathan, when they were doing the awards remotely during COVID or coming back from COVID. I will say, I think I I, I can put money on one category that I know who's going to win, (laughs) and that's short-run production, which is the Island at Court Theater, and I'm basing that on the fact that it is, in fact, the only nominee in that category. (laughs) But other than that, you know, it's sort of anyone's guess. They've also brought in categories for artistic specialization, which covers things like yeah, puppetry or storyboards or different you know types of fight choreography, things that um, maybe don't fit into the other older, more established categories of lighting design or costumes or set. So I will give the you know the Jeff Committee credit for being attentive and kind of open to the idea that some of these categories have to shift in recognition of how the work is actually being created in the community. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The award ceremonies, which uh, Ms. Gary mentioned, are, are uh, tomorrow night at Drury Lane uh, Oak Brook Terrace Theater, are open to the public. I do not know whether there are actually tickets left for tomorrow night or not, but it's a nice show with scenes and examples from uh, from the, the nominees. There is, uh, you know, a, a spread and cocktails and things like that. 
And uh, if you look up the Jeff Committee, Jeff Awards, you know, on, uh, online, www.jeffawards.com, uh, or it's probably .org. I think it's .org, you can, yeah. You can uh, determine whether there's still tickets available. If there are still seats available, they'd be happy to have you walk in, I'm sure. And then just a couple things I noticed, and I think we talked about this off-air. Uh, longtime Goodman Theater Artistic Director Robert Falls is going to be awarded a Lifetime Achievement Award. He's also nominated twice for Best Director of a Play for the Cherry Orchard and Swing State. Goodman by far has the most nominations with 32. The Paramount Theater is next with 18. Just as a casual observer, I was looking at all the theater company nominations, uh, and way down at the the bottom, Steppenwolf only had two. Is that is that just me, or is that surprising? I found it surprising because there were several shows that I quite enjoyed in the Steppenwolf season. But you know, it's not the same people going every time to the opening, so it really depends on who the opening night judges are. And Jonathan, you could probably speak to this better than I could. But you know, when they're there, it's not just about the entire production. Sometimes there may be a production that an opening night judge does not particularly care for the script, or even indeed the show itself, but there might be a design element that is particularly outstanding, and they can vote for that. So they're not always just looking at it in its entirety. But yeah, I will say that I was surprised that Steppenwolf didn't have a few more names on the board, as it were. Yeah, well, it's an elaborate. The system of judging nominations is quite elaborate and designed to be uh, as impartial as an award system can be. Though, you know, true impartiality or total impartiality is, is an impossibility. But it is an elaborate system, and, uh, and uh, there's probably not a year when members of the committee don't themselves individually don't feel that somebody or something has fallen through a crack and should have been nominated sure. and wasn't. But um, uh, that's the way this particular ball game works. Sure. Just stuck out to me. So the uh, the Equity Jeff Awards tomorrow at uh, Drury Lane, and uh, the Dueling Critics back here next Sunday. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Welcome. Always Thank good you, Gary. To talk with you. You're listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. Band Books Week kicks off today. Created in 1982 as a response to a surge in the number of challenges to books in libraries and schools, the American Library Association has continued the tradition for the past 40-plus years. This year's campaign is getting some renewed interest because of the skyrocketing number of book challenges across the country. According to the ALA, it was a record-setting year in 2022 with more than 1,200 challenges submitted, nearly double the previous record from 2021 and the scope of the challenges is expanding. Previously, a majority of these book ban attempts have focused on school libraries. This year, a growing number of challenges are being made at public libraries. Censorship attempts have always been with us. This is Evanston-based librarian and author Jarrett Dapier. He's the vice president of the ALA's Freedom to Read Foundation. The American Library Association keeps a tally going back, I think, 40, 50 years of recorded attempts to either remove a book or... So that, that would be a challenge, which is the attempt to remove a book or what we call a reconsideration, and then successful attempts to, to remove books. So yeah, it, they've always been with us. Um, there have always been attacks on uh, books that certain religious communities um, have decided are offensive. 
books, especially books for teens that might provide information about sexuality or drug use. So yeah, it's always been with us, but we've never seen it in the American Library Association's recorded history at this level. This, the number of attempts and successful bannings of books are triple to even quadruple in number from a typical year before 2020. Yeah, I was looking at some of the stats in uh, last year, uh, 2022 was an all-time high. And then this year already, I noticed like there's been a, a shift in some of these efforts to ban books, which have largely concentrated on school libraries. But now that's transitioning and there's more attempts to, to ban books at, at public libraries. Yeah, that's true. It did start with school libraries. It's now expanding to public libraries. And in preparation for this, I was curious, I was reading about sort of high profile censorship incidents that are occurring in Florida communities uh, very recently. And there's one example in Charlotte County, the superintendent of schools there uh, ordered that all books featuring even a whiff of LGBTQ content, they all must be removed from every school in the school district. I recently caught up with Dapier to talk about the growing number of book challenges. He has a unique perspective on the topic as a librarian and a published author. Oftentimes, I'll hear people who aren't taking this as seriously as it is. I'll hear them say, well, what's the big deal? They can go get it from the public library. So just as an experiment, I decided um, to go to the public library um, catalog of the local libraries in Charlotte County to see if any of them had my book, Mr. Watson's Chickens. And it's a book that features a same-sex couple who are struggling with a massive chicken problem. And none of the libraries had it. So the argument that, oh, you can just get it somewhere else is really, it doesn't hold water. Every library cannot carry every book. And that's, that's a misconception about libraries a lot of people have, that, that we could do that or that we would even have the budget to do that. Um, but also that we would even want to do that because not all books are the same, you know, uh, in terms of quality and usefulness to the public. On one hand, I tried to weigh, is it possible that these communities, you know, just don't have the budget for having, for buying my book? Interestingly, I went and checked out the library collections at different Texan uh, public libraries. And e what's interesting about that is in some of those communities where there's similar backlash against the school library, um, all of those, save for one, had Mr. Watson's chickens. So, you know, there can be a number of factors at work there, but I do suspect advance sort of like pre-censorship um, in some of the communities where it's not represented, where there are like book banning attempts. So they either never bought it because they just, and understandably sometimes don't want to deal with the outrage that might ensue knowing their community, or they quietly removed it before that could happen. Dapier is the vice president of the Freedom to Read Foundation, an organization that takes on the mission of Banned Books Week year-round. So the Freedom to Read Foundation exists to defend the freedom to read and the right to access information in public libraries and school libraries. And we do that in the form of joining legal efforts to protect that right to read. Um, so we are an extension of the American Library Association's Office for Intellectual Freedom, but we are an independent entity um, that supports that office. And our main 
actions are to join legal cases and and provide expertise on legislation that might affect or expand the right to read. And we also provide advocacy on behalf of readers and and, um, awareness regarding the right to read for all. And also, um, we also do work fundraising to provide financial assistance for librarians and information professionals whose careers have even have either been threatened or ruined by censorship attempts. You've written three picture books in recent years. Uh, we've talked about a couple here on the show. Uh, and then coming up, I think next year, you've got a, a graphic novel coming out and it, it takes on this very topic. It does. I, I completed it in 2020 and I've been chomping at the bit to get it to the market because of what's been going on. And so I'm very eager for, for readers to get their hands on it. It's called Wake Now in the Fire. And it is a graphic novel to be published by Chronicle Books. The illustrator is A.J. Dungo. It's the story, uh, it's based on the true events at a Chicago public high school that occurred in 2013 when uh, the Chicago Public School Administration um, gave a blanket order to remove the book Persepolis by Marjane Satrapi uh, from every school in the Chicago public school system. And when that happened and a small cache of the books were removed from um, a Northside high school, the students rose up in a way that not only called attention to this really shocking at the time, really shocking act of censorship, but they also um, were able to partially get the ban reversed and protect the book so that future CPS students could continue to read it and teachers could continue to teach it. And so... It is a fictionalized account of that incident. It's an incident that I researched for a long time in grad school and have been sort of writing about and speaking about in the last 10 years um, ever since. So the characters are, you know, fictionalized. The, The dialogue is fictionalized, but how it all went down and who some of the main political players were, all of that is true. When will it come out? Fall of 2024. Hopefully exactly one year from now. The first ever banned books week was in 1982. It's always been an issue, but does it feel cyclical? If so, then what about the future of this? Are, are you anticipating these efforts to challenge books to intensify, or is there hope that we're going to start to see some moderation? I've been hoping for moderation um, since 2021 when it really jumped. You know, people were very distracted in 2020, though there were early warning signs in the fall of 2020. But 2021 and 2022 were off the charts. And unfortunately, 2023 promises to be another year where the uh, the line is continuing to rise in terms of numbers of challenges and books pulled from the shelves. So this year is worse. And in terms of cyclical, I think about this constantly. I think about censorship and, and access to information constantly and... I have wondered if it was cyclical. We certainly see patterns that are connected to national trends and and national circumstances. But this is on a level, if those were ripples from previous years, this is a tsunami. And um, the only, I guess, modern day in our our lifetimes example I I keep thinking about is the satanic panic of the 80s. Um, And a lot of misinformation and fear and ignorance was spread during that time. And that's that's the only example 
I can think of in a, like modern American history where um, it was so prominent. Interestingly, in the 21st century, the trends have moved away from, usually you saw the same the same titles being banned um, in the 90s. Always Judy Bloom. Harry Potter started becoming really prominent after those came out. But as the book publishing industry has become even a tiny bit more diverse in who is represented and what information is provided in the books that are published, as that has become more diverse, the attacks on books that feature diversity, diverse characters, diverse information, diverse experiences, ethnicities, religions, attacks on those books have become the target of challenges and censorship. And then another, uh, the rise of popularity of comics and graphic novels have made, comics and graphic novels have always been a major target of censorship um, in America. That is particularly true right now and has been for the last 10 years as those formats have become exponentially more popular with kids and uh, high school readers. Actually, right now, there's an effort to misuse the term graphic novel um, or intentionally misunderstand it to claim that the term itself indicates that it's pornography because of the word graphic. But graphic literally means illustrated. So illustrated novel, it's just a fancy word for comics, um, usually comics in book form. Really quickly, before I let you go, you'll be participating in a virtual event on Monday, October 2nd, titled Freedom to Read, and uh, the Illinois Secretary of State, Alexi Janulius, is part of this. What types of things are you going to be talking about on this panel? So I'm sure Secretary of State Janulius will talk about Illinois being the first state to um, try to tackle censorship in a legislative way. They recently passed a law that would withhold funding from libraries that wholesale ban and remove books um, from the collection and basically deny the freedom to read. So he'll be talking about that. I'll be talking about Mr. Watson's Chickens and also my upcoming graphic novel. A lot of the same stuff you and I talked about. There's a uh, local Naperville author uh, whose book Other Words for Home. It's absolutely beautiful. She'll be speaking. She's won a Newbery honor. And we'll be talking with Heidi Stevens from the Sun-Times. But I think we'll be covering a whole range of topics. That's Evanston-based author and librarian Jared Dapier. Banned Books Week gets started today, October 1st. There's different ways you can get involved. Check out bannedbooksweek.org to learn more. If you're interested in that virtual panel discussion that's taking place tomorrow night, visit bannedbookbands.com. It's hard to say, bannedbookbands.com, and you can find a link to tomorrow's virtual panel discussion. I'm Gary Zydek. You're listening to the Arts Section. What started as a pandemic pivot back in 2020 has turned into a popular fall tradition at the Music Box Theater. The historic Lakeview Neighborhood Theater is celebrating Halloween all October with a series of spine-tingling screenings. The series is called Bride of Music Box of Horrors. It's a direct descendant of the theater's long-running 24-hour 
horror movie marathon known as Music Box of Horrors. Back in 2020, when the theater was still limited by capacity restrictions, the Music Box replaced its annual marathon with 31 nights of programming at a local drive-in. The response was so tremendous, theater general manager Ryan Ostrike knew he had to continue the tradition back at the Music Box after restrictions were lifted. The 2023 edition of the program kicks off tonight with a special screening of Phantom of the Monastery. It's important to note that this isn't a cookie-cutter series featuring a bunch of movies that you'll see on cable around this time of year. There's a focus on curation, with attention given to a wide spectrum of horror. The series features everything from 1920's The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which will be presented with a live musical score to the Chicago-shot Departing Seniors, which came out this year. I recently visited the Music Box and caught up with O-Strike to talk about what it's like programming a month of scary movies. Programming these 31 days of horror films, I would imagine, is a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely, Gary. And thank you again for showing some love for this uh, ridiculous labor of love that we put together every year. It really shouldn't be this insane. We should just have stuck to that 24-hour horror movie marathon that is called Music Box of Horrors. But, you know, uh, we birthed something bigger. <laughs> we just can't, can't let it go. We keep it alive. We keep feeding it, and people just keep coming back for more. So in terms of programming 31 nights, yeah, I mean, if you're a movie programmer who likes horror this is it this is like your favorite time of year you you spend months upon months like negotiating and discussing and talking about like what is it we're going to show this year what's going to be better than last year can we be better than last year how but thank god i've got an incredible team with will and katie helping me um who program and host all 31 nights with me as well as uh we have an incredible staff here who are all if you could imagine movie nerds and i'm always just like hey I don't care how weird the movie is. If you love it, tell me why. You know, so like I have this giant list of things that just I keep adding to. So, you know, it turns out it's actually not hard. I could have programmed 70 films, 80 films, but it is going to get harder because every year we're trying not to program things we programmed the year prior. So it is going to get harder for us at some point. But no, this thing is a lot of fun. I love it. Thank you. You open it up to your, your programming staff, but are you looking to cover certain subgenres within horror or certain time periods? Yeah, that is definitely the most important element to creating anything with horror is uh, not limiting it to just like 80s horror, 80s slashers, or like, oh, you know, like the classic horror movie monsters like Frankenstein and the Wolfman. No, no, no. Horror is everywhere in all sorts of things so there is just miscellaneous horror but then there are hor- there are subgenres of horror like slashers and like ghost stories or haunted houses or there are then you know the the the, the slasher franchises like the 12 jason movies friday the 13th i'm talking about of course and so the true intention of a really good 31 day program is to show all types Right from like the serious, like intellectual horror to the schlocky, just gore fest and everything in between. And this, this, this has it again this year. Is that got that that wide array of variety? So it's like, oh, I don't really like horror. Uh, actually, I bet I have something you would like. Just let me, let me, let me give me three films that you you've seen recently that you like. Cool. I got a horror film for you that actually is not the horror you dislike. It's the horror you like and you did not know. You should create like an algorithm for that and people just enter in like their three favorite movies and you'll tell them 
what horror movie is for them? It would be my brain. No algorithm <laughs> here to be created. And it would not be my brain singularly. Again, I absolutely sure. need Will and Katie. They're so vitally important. And then, of course, I know some of my staff really likes horror, so I would involve some of them too. If you're listening uh, to the art section live on Sunday morning, the series kicks off tonight. The opening film isn't something that I would imagine that's screened often. It's a 1934 Spanish language horror film. Yeah, it's really special. Phantom of the Monastery because um, there, uh, Viviana Garcia, she has like old Mexico City, like Hollywood, right? So like there was like a film production down there in Mexico City and her family like had a whole studio. And so the family fell out of the business, but they have they have the rights and the content to all these films that they produced back into the from like 1929 to like 1959. I want to say there was like 30 years, and so she is meticulously going through and restoring these classics. Like this is like a, a, a love for her. She she just wants to do this, and so this is actually a restoration of a film that her family originally produced. Now some of these films that they produced down there never got showed in the United States. So this is actually going to be the Chicago premiere theatrically of this movie and of its restoration. So it's really, really special. And Viviana will be here. So for those who just want to like nerd out and find out what it's like to like restore films and the work that it takes and how you find the negatives and what it takes to go into that and why we care about, you know, preserving history, like movie history, even if it's movie history of not Hollywood, that is going to be a really special night because we have shown a few of Viviana's works and she's not been able to attend. But this time we're flying her in from Mexico City and she will be there that night. And I'm, I'm so excited to welcome her into the music box. We'll skip ahead a little bit. I was looking at the the schedule, and so you already referenced it too. Within this month long of programming is the 24-hour OG Music Box of Horrors Marathon. That's on the the 21st, and so that's like uh, programming a festival within a festival. Yes, that one is why we do what we do. That's why we have something called Music Box of Horrors, because it was always a 24-hour horror movie marathon. And in that, singularly, you understand our entire programming philosophy. Because if you look at those 13 feature films, you see all types of horror, from a silent horror film with a live score to a brand new horror film that you haven't seen yet, and everything in between, like a creature feature and a slasher and a what the hell did I just watch, (laughs) you know, a gore fest, uh, a discovery, like a film that came out that nobody saw went straight to video and still to this day nobody has seen but we're gonna like discover it for you and show it to you and you're gonna be like holy cow watching that with 700 people was probably the most fun I had all year and so that marathon is so special it you know was the seed that grew into what is 31 days and sadly for your listeners it is sold out but people if you hear about it just know it really is a unique event to come to and no you don't have to go to all 24 hours but I do recommend next year we always put the tickets on sale in April and May to get your tickets early because this was the earliest it's ever sold out it sold out five weeks in advance that is unheard of as far as the experience when I was a lot younger I think I could stay up 24 hours do some people do that or do they doze off here or do they leave and come back a little bit of everything so you have people who really they don't try the 24 right they just go as long as they can then they leave and sometimes it's their own bodies and sometimes it's what they put into their bodies that make them get really sleepy and tired and that's okay because some you know most we find most people do like four to six movies which is great that that is a marathon in itself of the people of the rest 
there are folks who push themselves further. Sometimes they fall asleep in the theater. Sometimes they stay awake, right? They have their own routines to do it. Of the people that like go through the whole 24 and actually stay awake and we can confirm they're alive and well. <laughs> well, well, that's, a, that, I don't know about wellness. I would say like between 100 and 150 of the 700 people can get through it. But we've had this huge growing number, which is surprising to me, where they will go for four, five, six movies, maybe seven. Then they go home and sleep for like six hours. Uh, and then they come back for the second to last or the, the last two or the very last. And then they're there for the end. So like, you know, when I say 100 to 150, the, the photo last year had at least over 200 people in it. Right. And so you knew a bunch of them had gone somewhere to sleep and came back. Because uh, they look way too fresh. I'm, I'm there all 24 hours. I do not look good the next day. But that's horror, right? So you're not going to judge me on that for surviving this ridiculous gruel of uh, watching horror films. But I, I promise it, it. For the people that do go through it the whole 24, even though they're like dazed and confused, they're like, wow. You know, they, they, they're proud of themselves. Like they can't believe they put themselves through it. They also have like a love of horror that's deepened in strength and they are have these other people like them these zombies right. that they feel like incredible community with because you know when it gets to like four and six in the morning you start to talk to each other even if it's just mumbles <laughs> right uh and that's like when we're brewing extra coffee to keep you awake it's just it's lovely like the community there is just really special if you're just joining us i'm gary zydek this is the arts section. I'm talking with Music Box General Manager Ryan Ostrike about the theater's October programming. Looking at the schedule, a couple that, that caught my eye was this film called The The Tingler that's going to be shown on October 26th. So this, I have to give it up to my staff. You know, I it, even though I'm a programmer and I program the majority of stuff, I, my staff are brilliant, crazy, nerdy, uh, I love chatting film with them all the time, and sometimes when I'm chatting film with them, they come up with incredible ideas, and then I got I just like that I have to do this. So a couple of my staff came up with this idea of doing William Castle movies with all the old William Castle gags. So they did House on ha a Haunted Hill, two shows. It sold out. The gags they created were just phenomenal. Like, you know, I mean, I gave them like a budget to work with, but they really <laughs> pulled it off. I was just like amazed with what they created. It was like making an independent horror movie. It's amazing how they did it. And so I, I said to him, I said, bravo, that was incredible. Let's do it again. And they said, we want to do The Tingler. So uh, they are doing The Tingler with Percepto. Percepto is going to be the interactive elements. That's what it's called. William Castle created it. So in his in his honor, we're going to do those things. And that's going to be two showings on those nights. And I do recommend getting your tickets early because those last times we, we did it, 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 they sold out. My staff have some really fun things planned. Just like really like, well, you just have to find out. <laughs> but what, what is Percepto for folks that don't know? Well, you're going to have to find out. I don't want to give away the secrets, but just know that there is going to be gags, interactive, and maybe things that you feel. But again, you just got to come to figure it out. We might make you sign a little waiver on upon entry. So it's like an interactive element for the theater. Okay. Uh, that's what intrigued me about that one. Um, and then the next night on October 27th is uh, this film from 1984 called The Jar. Yeah, so The Jar is one of those kind of like a str uh, 
kind of like lost straight to video films um, that nobody really th thought existed. But there's this incredible distributor of like those types of movies called Terrorvision. They actually are located here in Chicago. They produce, they find all these kind of like long forgotten movies that uh, are like, what the hell? How did they make that movie? Like what lunatics gave them like even $50,000? And that's the jar. I mean, basically it is an old man disappearing but a jar stays behind, and then inexplicable things happen afterwards. And there's a better description on my website. I don't want to go into too much. Honestly, if you just like being surprised at how a film can be made for like no budget, just go in blind because the jar is a wild ride. Um, and you'll be like, and you, you forgive it because again, this is like a you know made for video film, so like the the production value is low. But if you just let it go and you let it take you in you'll be surprised at how much fun you have with the jar. That's kind of what it intrigued me, that it was this kind of lost film, but it's been resurrected in a sense for this. Yes, and the importance of a programmer, of curation, right, which is what we do at the Music Box, me and my team, is to point those out to you and give you the opportunity to see them with a peep, with a, with a, with a bunch of people. Because otherwise, you'll never know that you would actually have a lot of fun with like this ridiculously low-budget horror movie. But if you believe in us, if you trust us, if you know that we're going to give you great horror offerings, come to the jar or come to some of the other stuff we're going to do. One more I wanted to, to talk about uh, that's taking place earlier in October. It's something I, I've read about and I've heard people that I respect talk about. Ganja and Hess, I've never had a chance to see it, but another example of a unique opportunity to see something on the big screen. Ganja and Hess is a very unique film because, um, so it's, it, it's a, a black film that was kind of an art house film, first and foremost, but it had vampires in it. So in the 70s, when they released it, they wanted to uh, kind of like use exploitation and that movement of films as a, as a reason for people to go see it. But it wasn't a exploitation film. It was an actual art house film with great acting, great script, good, good directing, but it's horror because it's vampires. So again, this is like one of those ones where you're like, Dude, but I don't like horror. Actually, Ganja Hess is, is less horror that, than you think. But of course, it has vampires and it's got blood, so you know you put it into that genre. But it's actually, I think, a really important uh, milestone in black cinema, and I think a lot of people look back into it as one of those overlooked uh, films that should have gotten a lot of respect because you know people saw that movie and probably it influenced them to go on and become filmmakers or to take. Uh, the idea of horror to an art house level. And I think that is why it's important to show something like Ganjin has, because people need to know that horror can do a lot of other things and uh, it can be revolutionary at the same time. So we want uh, folks to come check out Bride of Music Box of Horrors, which is taking place all month long here at the Music Box Theater. We were talking a little bit before we, we started just about, you know, what it's been like in general with theaters uh, being open after the pandemic. And, and for you here personally at the, the Music Box, it seems like movie fans are coming back in full force. We are lucky. Um, again, uh, we probably have to thank my staff and all of the work that they put in and all we've done together. But uh, we are probably, uh, we are not just back from the pandemic, we've gone past in terms of admissions. We are just seeing exceedingly excited crowds to come to movies, to be here, to interact, to enjoy uh, the extras that we do here. We have our Music Box Lounge and our curated cocktail menu. We have our movies out in the garden, so you get to watch them outside in the summertime. 
And we've kind of just really leaned into being um, a place where you can get more out of just being there, right? More out of just seeing a movie. You get community, you get a place that's very welcoming, uh, you get a place that really cares about its programming and is willing to take risks on its programming, right? To show you things you might not have heard of or things that might challenge you or things that are just super fun and dumb, right? That you just wanna like turn your brain off and have lots of fun, right? The mix is just everywhere and it's all over the place and then it's so intentional because everybody actually does like going to the movies. Sometimes you, you just need to tell them, hey, we've got something for you. Right? We've got something that's going to make you feel special and put you together with a bunch of other people that love that movie. And you're going to forg- when you come, you'll remember how much you, you loved going to the movies and experiencing a comedy with 700 people and laughing or a horror movie with 700 people and screaming or like one person shouts and then oh, and everybody laughs because, you know, it breaks the tension in the room. But having that feeling and that community of, of cinema, uh, we've been lucky. We, we, we didn't stop working. We kept going even in the hardest parts of the pandemic and people have come back. And it's, it's been just lovely to, to see them again and to even increase our group you know, of people that come through because we have a lot of people who try us for the first time. We've never been here and they, they have a great evening. We have people who bring their friends and their families. We have people that fly in. I mean, I have, like, we were just talking about the 24-hour marathon. I know people that are flying in from Los Angeles, San Francisco, Denver, New York, Dallas, and Miami. Wow. Right? And I'm not talking just, like, a few. There's probably going to be, like, 50 to 55 people flying in from other states just for this event because of how special it is because they don't have it where they live. Right? They don't have that special. So they they fly in for it because they want to be a part of it. Right? And so I think... I think people are talking about why going to the movies can be special, and I think the music box can, is one of those places, and it's really helping us to return to what we have always been, which is you know this historic art house movie theater that shows a little bit of everything. And because of that success, you know we're able to keep up this old building and put money back into it, um, and you know just keep a great staff on on the payroll and uh, and keep great movies coming through and take to chances too. Right? Even when sometimes things don't make money, you know, 50 passionate people in the audience might feel really seen. And sure, it didn't make money, but don't worry, we've got a bunch of other things coming up. So it's all kind of this formula or this recipe that's just worked for us. And uh, it's, it's great to see. Man, I just, I love seeing 700 people come see a movie. Right. It's always a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you, and hope to see you at the movies. That's Ryan Ostrike. He's the general manager of the Music Box Theater. Bride of Music Box of Horrors starts tonight, October 1st, and continues all month. You can check out a full schedule at musicboxtheater.com. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the show's website, theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening.
to the body. Teeth are extruded and put on the ground and baked into cakes with your pasta around. <laughs>